Welcome to Head to Toe, a series of interviews with experienced medical health professionals, illuminating healthcare's history while shedding a light on its future. Here we are, episode three, Head to Toe. We are here with Dr. Loretta Crouchscheid at the University of Portland School of Nursing. She is a professor of... So many things. So many things. I teach in both the undergraduate and the graduate program, and I also teach learning strategies for our faculty. And then I also teach clinical education strategies for nurses who teach our students in the clinical practice setting. So a great many things. Yeah, well-rounded. A number of things. Excellent. And uh, today we are going to talk with her about the topic of moral distress and her specific research on that topic related to student nurses, Mm -hmm. amongst other things. So we're going to start on a personal level. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your background in nursing. Um, Where did you go to school? What year did you finish training? And how long have you been in the nursing field? Oh, boy, there's a number of answers to that. So I will just say that my journey started at Portland Community College. And then I got married and we moved to Iowa and then Montana. So I didn't start my nursing degree until I was 25 and had a two-year-old. My bachelor's is from Montana State University, and that was in the 1990s. And then my master's degree is from Oregon Health and Science University, did that in 2004. And then I started teaching at the University of Portland, fell in love with the teaching role and wanted to know so much more about how to research effective teaching strategies and how to really help that future nursing workforce for the work that they needed to do for the world. And so then I uh, did my PhD in nursing education and finished that in 2012. The majority of my nursing practice has been in obstetrics, high-risk, antepartum, and did a little stint in the NICU, not not too long there. And then I also did some school health nursing, population nursing, and then also pack you. Well, that answers my second question of what kinds of nursing work have you done? So excellent yeah. segue. Thank oh, you. and I should say teaching. <laughs> and teaching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what drew you to teaching? You know, in every place that I worked, Montana, Eastern Oregon, and in the Portland area, I would always have a student nurse with me and or I was asked to precept new hires. And within a couple days of doing that, whoever I was teaching at the bedside, they would say to me, why don't you teach nursing in college? You just have a way of explaining things that makes it relatable because we need things to sink into long-term memory and so people can use them in new and diverse situations later. Mm-hmm. After I finished my master's degree, I did do um, clinical nursing education at a hospital in Hillsborough, Quality Healthcare. And I really enjoyed teaching, practicing nurses. I came to realize that I think I would enjoy teaching people who are a clean slate. I'd like to start with people who aren't already experiencing compassion fatigue, burnout. I I feel like some people have come to the point where they think, you know, this is just how things are in nursing. I'm just going to go with the status quo. Who am I to try to improve the system? And, and I didn't want <laughs> I didn't want to deal with some of those challenges anymore. So I came to work at the University of Portland to start to build the future nursing workforce with a strong foundation from the very beginning. People who didn't have any preconceived notion about what nursing practice could or couldn't be. And I just wanted to really instill hope and uh, caring along with all those hard skills of physical assessment, medication administration, 
sterile technique. I just mm-hmm. wanted to instill good action and hope from the very beginning. Sounds like it's been quite a passion for you. Yes, it has. That's great. That's yeah. good. We need that in our in our teaching workforce. So thank you for yeah. all of that. Um, turning t- uh, directly to your area of research, let's talk about terms that you actually just brought up. Um, can you define the distinctions between moral distress, compassion fatigue, and burnout? Yes. So the other things, compassion fatigue and burnout, are consequences of moral distress. So moral distress is really defined as when you know the ethically correct action that you should take, and yet you feel constrained from acting on your convictions because of either internal or external situations. So that's the true definition of moral distress. And it can be related to both microethical as well as bioethical situations. Bioethical situations are the big things that people really identify as having an ethical component. Bioethical situations are things like deciding whether to start or withdraw life-sustaining support. Abortion is another big bioethical thing. Whereas microethical situations are those day-in, day-out routine ethical decisions, such as I'm running short on time. Should I really go back in there and um, reassess the lung and heart sounds because I forgot to do them earlier? Or can I just can I just document within defined limits on the chart? That's actually an ethical decision. It's a shortcut that could have consequences for the patient's health, safety, and well-being. Another microethical decision that students have reported frequently to us is deciding whether or not I should say something to my coworker when I see them breaking infection control. That is an ethical dilemma because you know what a nurse should do to prevent the spread of infection, but are you able to act on that ethical knowing, or do you feel constrained because of either internal or external forces? Compassion fatigue is actually also associated with another definition called moral residue. So the longer somebody lives in a healthcare environment or a culture that promotes the status quo and prohibits ethical action, then people develop this coding of complacency. It becomes easier to go along and get along than it does to act and speak up. So that's called moral residue. And that was defined by um, Epstein and Hamrick in about 2012. And then burnout is another consequence of moral distress. Uh, The longer your compassion fatigue and moral residue go on, there's something called the crescendo effect, that moral residue keeps building and building and people begin to believe that it is hopeless to try to change the status quo. So they become burnt out. And that's what leads to another consequence of moral distress, which is turnover, or nurses leaving their current job looking for a better place to work, or even nurses leaving the profession altogether. According to a study by the American Association of Colleges of Nursing, one in every three nurses within the first two years of practice will leave their job because of moral distress and the burnout and compassion Mm -hmm. fatigue that go with it. 
So hence the uh, collective focus back on um, why you've chosen to research with your students that like you're talking about your blank slate and that like (laughs) to get them from from the beginning as as to have this as an awareness for them in the in the first place. So lately, at least in the last few years, like you said, you're mentioning all these these studies and whatnot, at least the uh, phenomenon of moral distress has become somewhat of a hot topic. Why do you think it's gaining a spotlight now when it has likely been part of healthcare practice since the dawn of time? Exactly. So like you said, since the dawn of time, ethical dilemmas have been embedded within a variety of professions and sure. healthcare is one of them. Sure. The definition of moral distress came out 20 years ago. And yet we haven't really done much to resolve the problem. So why is it emerging now as a hot topic with the American Nurses Association, mm-hmm. American Association of Colleges of Nursing, mm-hmm. and the American Association of Critical Care, Care Nurses? nurses yeah. Why is this such a big topic? And, and Physicians Association. Yeah, so, true. Yeah. And even the National Council State Boards of Nursing mm-hmm. and um, the Baccalaureate Essentials for Education mm-hmm. have highlighted that we must be preparing graduates for the complex and chaotic ethical environment environments that Mm -hmm. they're heading into. And yet, we haven't been. As a matter of fact, ethics often takes a backseat, because other things are viewed as more important so that people can pass the NCLEX, such as physical assessment, labs, medications, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So why now? Right. Three big reasons Ah. for why now. Okay. Okay. Got it. The consequences of moral distress are causing people to leave the profession. So the turnover and that we're noticing in our healthcare work mm-hmm. and that, oh, oh crap, we mm-hmm. don't have nurses because we're short all the time. Exactly. On the and so even though uh, it feels as though the nursing workforce shortage has been delayed, we anticipate that by 2020, the nursing workforce shortage will hit in a big way. That's Me- not very long from now. That's no. like the students who are going to school right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, four years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just to put in a plug for the Oregon Center for Nursing, they've been tracking this data. And if you go look at the Oregon Center for Nursing website, you can see the research they've been doing on that, not only in the state of Oregon, but they also um, have links to full text articles that you mm-hmm. can take a look at from other people and see what's going on there. So the anticipated workforce shortage um is bringing moral distress to the forefront because we want to prevent uh, the burnout, powerlessness, and compassion fatigue and keep quality nurses working at the bedside. It costs a lot of money to hire a new nurse, orient them, mm-hmm. train them, it's onboard money. them. It's total money. Yeah. So uh, hospitals are interested in the topic of moral distress and how can we prevent that burnout and turnover that's happening. But let's not forget the biggest cost. The Joint Commission is also very interested in moral distress because that compassion fatigue leads to lower quality care for patients. And that is manifested in big things that the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services has brought up. Catheter-associated infections, urinary catheters and indwelling catheters, even uh, preventable readmissions. Mm -hmm. A lot of these things are linked back to quality nursing care. And if moral distress is causing compassion fatigue and burnout, then that will decrease quality patient care. So that's one big cluster of why is it important now. We're trying to address some bigger issues by getting back to Mm -hmm. what's going on with practice 
and what's going on with moral distress that's mm-hmm. influencing practice. The other thing is the change in the demographics of the nursing workforce. The baby boomers are anticipated to retire soon. There has been a significant increase in the number of BSN and ADN grads. And so the nursing workforce shortage seems to have slowed down. But what they're also tracking is the demographics of the current nursing workforce. And the majority of nurses who are going to be taking care of people in the coming years will be the millennial generation. And the millennials bring with them a lot of great attributes, including their interest in technology and how can we use technology to enhance nursing same practice. Mm -hmm. One of the other things millennials bring with them is a desire to promote teamwork. Well, that's awesome. We need interdisciplinary teamwork. But if you think about it from the perspective of the research that's been done on moral distress, one of the things that causes moral distress is the internal constraint of not wanting to um, tell our teammate that they are doing something unethical. People of the millennial generation don't have problems with that as much. (laughs) Well, (laughs) they feel constrained from speaking up because it's more important to keep the team functioning than it is to speak up and potentially cause distress with our coworker. Also, the millennial generation has been called the app generation. They're app dependent, but people of the millennial generation who are more app dependent, they were more likely to resolve conflict by sending a text. I see. So you're saying that um, the millennial dependence upon technology has decreased the the likelihood of somebody speaking up in a potentially dangerous situation. And, yes. that's, and that's what differs that generation from previous generations? Or would you say that well, the baby boomer generation was even worse. Okay. Actually. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. um, the baby boomer generation grew up in apprenticeship models with hierarchies. And these hierarchies create the position of the nurse in a subordinate role. Mm-hmm. And so baby boomers were actually trained to not question authority directly. So you would say just from this increasing awareness of the topic itself that things are getting better, but there's obviously a lot more work to be so done. We have to approach it differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with the uh, millennial generation who were who's emerging as the largest population of the nursing workforce, mm-hmm. we need to create authentic simulation scenarios where they can't, they're in the moment of conflict mm-hmm. and they need to use their conflict management strategies to address the issue and keep the patient safe. And yet still maintain the relationship with their team member. It's kind of like helping their team member to save face. Mm -hmm. We don't want to call our team members out if we see them not washing their hands Mm. or if we see them, I mean, and actually if somebody didn't wash their hands, it's probably because they got distracted and they forgot. Yeah, especially as as the green nurse, you're not going to be the one-on-one to like be known your first two weeks as somebody who's right. coming in and like, who's oh, you're doing problems. this wrong. You're yeah. doing this wrong. Like that's yeah. that's not the the front you want to put on. And I can understand that's that's where those students are coming from. Like I'm just a student. I'm just kind of going along here. I need to graduate. So. Yep. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. so there's this whole thing about communication patterns where we need to teach people how to speak up respectfully and understand that, yes, they are part of a team. And yes, as a student or even as a nurse working in a healthcare setting, I'm going to have to keep working with this nurse 
for the next six weeks, or I'm going to have to keep ner- working with this nurse for as long as I am employed or here. Or I need a recommendation so I can get hired. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. And so um, there's this tendency to not speak up because I know that I'm going to be in relationship with this nurse mm-hmm. or this physician mm-hmm. for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. And yet, what's our primary obligation from the ANA code of ethics and our professional standards and all kinds of ethical theories mm-hmm. that support nursing practice? Mm-hmm. Our primary obligation is to p- promote the health and safety and support the inherent value and dignity mm-hmm. of this patient who's counting on us. So where we're coming from is teaching our students how to maintain relationship with the team through effective conflict communication strategies and effective application of ethical frameworks and yet still advocate for that patient where our biggest relationship mm-hmm. exists. So turning to the student experience now, I think it is important to educate these topics to students, to new nurses, to increase their awareness of it in the beginning of their careers, like you said, a blank slate, just as we say, wear good shoes and like suggest wearing compression stockings so you don't get, you know, <laughs> blood clots in your legs mm-hmm. later in life or lift with your legs, not with your back, all things to help, like you said, maximize a novice's longevity in the field. So I'm glad to know these subjects are being addressed in school and that there is a desire to learn more about the student experience in order to prepare them for the real world. So That being said, you performed qualitative studies, which included surveys of senior nursing students regarding their feelings towards clinical stress. Can you summarize those findings? Yes. Um, So there's a trajectory of research that's been going on. So I'll try to keep this brief and it'll be like an elevator speech at the Sears Tower. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) I'll prepare myself. Yeah, not too long. Okay, so all research questions start with this experience that you're trying to resolve. So my line of research came out of students repeatedly coming to me, sitting in my chair and feeling powerless because they knew that what they learned, what they've been tested on, and what they've demonstrated in lab was evidence-based practice, and yet they would see things happening in clinical and they felt confined from speaking up. I knew that was happening but I needed to verify it. So our very first study, we didn't tell the students what was going to happen. We got IRB approval on this, but we created a simulation in which a patient with heart failure needed to have some cardiac medications and the student nurse um, needed to give the medications. And so we hired an actor to play the role of the patient. We actually hired people with um, hypertension and edema (laughs) and we told them not to take their meds that morning. So they would have hypertension. You're just trying to replicate this as best you can. And then we got nurses who work with our students at the bedside to come in and play the role of the staff nurse. But the nurses that we got to come in, we scripted them to purposefully break a standard, highly accepted nursing procedure of not leaving medications unattended at the bedside. Mm-hmm. You just don't do that. Yeah. All the literature says don't do that. So you don't do that. The students knew. So you created that a scenario true, true. where yes. they were told to do that. Yes, but the students didn't know that we were going to sure. do this. They just thought they were coming in to demonstrate clinical practice. Sure. In every single student who was involved in the study, they went in to assess the patient. They saw that the patient was hypertensive. The patient got a phone call while they were trying to give the meds and the patient said, I've been waiting for this phone call. Just leave the meds there. I take those at home. I'm fine. Just leave them. And every single student turned to the nurse that they were working with Uh because we're replicating what happens in student learning. Uh 
And the nurse goes, it's fine, just leave it. And so every single student did. Now the real part of the study happened when we interviewed them. We interviewed each student. How many, how many students? This was a qualitative study, so seven. But we knew by student, in qualitative research, you're looking for saturation of themes. Mm -hmm. We knew by student number five that we had reached saturation, but we added on two more students just to see if there was anything new to learn. Mm -hmm. They all Mm -hmm. told us pretty much the same Mm -hmm. thing. So what we learned from them is that in the moment, they knew that that was not the right thing to do. And they knew that if they left those meds there, a lot of things could happen. They could fall on the floor. The patient could forget to take them. A grandkid could come in and maybe take the meds. Housekeeping could come in and not see them, and they could end up in the trash. Mm. And they knew that the consequences of those actions would result in not protecting the health and safety of the patient. So they knew there was a dilemma. And yet they trusted and deferred to the expertise of this nurse. Just a, sorry, pause. When you say you knew that they knew that, was there a a way to make sure of that before the study? Were like, were they tested on these tenants before the study? Yes. So you you knew that these seven students like all checked, like they all knew this. Yes. Okay. And let me also say that these, we selected these students because they were on the cusp of post-licensure practice. Mm-hmm. So, so, so you have this uh, these seven students who none of them do it, and then you go, well, Okay, crap. tell us your story. Yes. So qualitative, <laughs> How do we fix this? <laughs> qualitative research aims to understand the meaning of that experience. They had one formal ethics education class. It was in their sophomore year. They couldn't remember anything from that ethics class. The theme was, my ethics education was unapplied and forgotten. That class was so hypothetical and vicarious that it didn't carry through into practice. So we use that in nursing education to revise our curriculum and fix the problem. Because we put them in that clinical setting to learn nursing practice, and because we attach them to that staff nurse to learn clinical practice, that staff nurse is an expert, and they are unquestionably infallible, despite what they learned in the classroom the lab, and despite what they've been testing tested on. The next theme was moral disequilibrium. They said they felt conflicted and torn, but when push came to shove, it was better to go along and get along because this person is grading me. This person might write me a recommendation letter. Mm-hmm. This person may not like me mm-hmm. if I say to them, should I really leave the meds here? Mm-hmm. So what we learn from that theme is that students are mulling prefactual fears around in their head. A lot of them had never had an experience like that before. They'd had other experiences, but not that exact medication administration one. So that led us to create other educational strategies to create positive psychology outcomes to counterbalance those prefactual fears and promote moral courage. Students are stressed most of the time due to everything that is related to school. Thinking back to my own student experience, how did you differentiate between being generally stressed out and being morally stressed by certain clinical scenarios? We didn't. We were only interested in studying ethical decision-making and moral distress. So we did not ask questions about general stress and self-efficacy and confidence, yeah, in the educational environment itself. Is there a formal plan in place across all nursing schools to increase education about moral distress and really prepare these students for the emotional challenges of the workplace? 
There are blanket statements and recommendations from the American Association of Colleges of Nursing and the National League for Nursing. Both of those uh, bodies um, are involved in um, making recommendations about what should be an associate and baccalaureate education curriculum. And their blanket statements are that nursing education programs should prepare students to safely and effectively enact ethical frameworks in such a manner that pr promotes the ANA code of ethics. So they just give these blanket statements and then it's up to the school it's of nursing to figure out how to make that happen. Yeah. yeah. In other words, most of the strategies involve lecture about the ANA code of ethics. Here's what the ethics say you should do. Now go do it. Other cognitive strategies include case studies, but those are vicarious and hypothetical for the student. They haven't lived it. And so what they're living is somebody else's story. And so vicarious or hypothetical stories have less emotional meaning to the student whether or not it embeds into long-term memory and whether or not they can transfer that into actual practice mm -hmm. is not known. And then the other strategy, which is somewhat helpful, is role play. In our research studies with our students, they said that role play is less effective than embedding ethical dilemmas into high fidelity simulation because in role play, it's kind of scripted. This is what our students said, quote, I behaved the way I knew the teacher wanted me to so I could pass the class. Totally. End quote. <laughs> and they just said it's not emotional. It's not in your face. And it's just not the most effective way. So what we have done is all the cognitive things that are recommended from AACN and NLN. So in our core curriculum for all baccalaureate students, they have to take a philosophy ethics course. So we still have that. It is um, foundational ethical theories both contemporary and classical. We've also embedded in junior level nursing courses, case studies, role play, and we've upped the ante. We've enhanced the intentional learning about conflict communication strategies. We've created our own videos to try to create an emotional response from the students about common microethical dilemmas they'll experience and how people can best handle those so they can remain in relationship with the nurse they're working with and yet uphold the primacy of the nurse-patient relationship and keep that patient safe. The most common microethical dilemmas are breaches and in infection control practices, not washing hands, not using sterile technique appropriately, not wearing personal protective equipment when you know you should. The next most common one is breaking HIPAA. Mm. Um, coming in a room and asking for confidential patient information and you're a healthcare worker and you happen to know this person. Mm -hmm. If they're not in your care and you're not assigned mm -hmm. to them, mm -hmm. don't do it. Mm -hmm. That's the second thing. And then the third thing is shortcuts and workarounds around medication administration safety. Quite often, the, well, it was 16% of the time, the number one way they handled with it handled the, a dilemma was avoidance. They turned their back on it. Now, the good news is that 40% of the time they spoke up and said something, although it was often sounded like this. Uh, 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 wait, wait. And then the rest of the time, some students, I don't know where they learned it from. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's personal upbringing. Maybe they're CNAs. Maybe they're EMTs. Sure. But the rest of the time, they were confident in their ability to speak up and effectively promote quality patient care. So 
This simulation, I know it's like part of your huge platform. At in here in the school, you guys have a like a mock hospital ward with, yep. and this is this is pretty common ac- across baccalaureate programs all over the country is to have simulation type of. It is. Do you see that as like the the future of not only uh, technical skills, you know, practice, but also like you're saying, you know, you have these complex scenarios in which to teach medical ethics at the same time. Yes, and it it needs to be embedded within the care of med surge, obstetric, pediatric, mm-hmm. all these simulations that we have, even population health simulations. We have some of those where students go and simulate a home health visit. Mm-hmm. And you know, how do you assess in the home because mm-hmm. you know, you're looking at the entire environment plus the patient there. So we need to take the full scope of nursing practice, all the situations that somebody could encounter. I mean, if we're going to optimally prepare this future nursing workforce to hit the floor running beyond the novice level, mm-hmm. they need to be able to identify the, de- the ethical decision making that needs to be made in that contextual situation. And when they enter into practice, be able to act, which is what the ANA says. They say the number one way to prevent moral distress is to speak up. Okay. How safe is that if you've never rehearsed it before? True. So people have to be able to rehearse that. 10 to 30% of the time they followed that bad advice because they lack confidence. And 10 to 30% of the time they followed that advice because it was safer to follow the advice and avoid conflict. So again, the recommendations from this study was, all right, I don't know what I can do about this trusting thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do want to trust our coworkers, right? Right. I mean, yeah. Nursing is totally a team sport. Yes, it is. <laughs> so I can't really do anything about that in nursing practice. But what I can do is address this confidence issue mm-hmm. and not knowing how to respectfully speak up. Do you think that the, the confidence issue is related to their lack of confidence in their, their own technical practice? Does yes. that, do you think that, that it stems from that and that's why perhaps their, their trust is put solely in the, in the experienced professional because that, that they see that 10 years of experienced nurse and they go, well, they're confident with all the things that I'm still learning how to do. Therefore, their advanced concepts, like, you know, your higher thinking concepts, such as these microethical dilemmas, like I should trust their, their judgment on that as well. And I can see how that is such a conflict at this level of pre-licensure, as you would say, that they don't have any confidence with, with technical practice yet. I can see how that's, as an educator, is frustrating and that you're like, well, what do I do? Um, I think that it's it's wonderful that you're highlighting moral distress as, as a topic to be aware of as early as your first year in nursing school. I think that that's, that's great because even, even the experienced nurses are going to experience moral distress in their daily work. You're going to find clinical settings where you know what is right, but you are unable to do it. And going mm-hmm. back to that definition of of moral distress and um, you're going to have angst because there's a difference in what is and what it should be. And sometimes it won't be up to you to even make that mm-hmm. decision. So how, how do you um, see teaching students to, to deal with those feelings, not just to, not just to stab the heart at the, the origin of the issue is like to prevent it from happening in the first place. And mm-hmm. I think all the simulation is like great in that you're, you're educating the, the youth here to like how to, you know, prevent it from happening in the first place and to be excellent and perfect and, you know, the best nurses that they can be. But they're going to ha- experience a plethora of bad feelings whenever morally distressing situations come up. Do you, do you foresee sort of teaching them ways to deal with that? Is that part of the formal education in a baccalaureate program? Or is that just more of a mentorship that they're going to develop eventually? 
So how I see dealing with it is creating coping, effective coping strategies and resiliency. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Like you said, it's Mm -hmm. going to happen throughout their career. Mm -hmm. Expect it. Mm -hmm. Um, Can we prevent it? Well, again, the ANA says the best way to manage it is to speak up. So I guess in a way we can prevent some moral distress through learning how to effectively communicate and voice our values. But also maybe we can prevent some of it through um, taking leadership roles and um, getting yourself onto committees so that maybe we can change the hierarchical um, norms and cultures that create a hotbed for moral distress. Maybe we can get ourselves on an interprofessional team of some type and talk about the topic. Or maybe we can, you know, one of the things that causes moral distress is not having, feeling constrained about being able to provide the best care that I can because of time pressures mm-hmm. and staffing ratios mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are a lot of ways that people can maybe hinder some of the accumulation of moral distress by getting involved. Okay. But not everybody has the time to do that. You know, I certainly didn't when mm-hmm. I was a new nurse and mm-hmm. had three kids and sure. all of that. So maybe those of us who are at different places in our lives can get more involved and try to prevent that. Getting back to the curriculum and preparing student nurses for how to manage moral distress, um, it is such a multifactorial issue. So definitely they have to have the knowledge of ethical frameworks and what people call moral awareness. We have to know when an ethical dilemma is present. So we have to have education about what are ethical dilemmas and what what does our license say we are responsible for? And that would maybe give us some courage to do those kinds of things. So we need that kind of awareness in terms of cognitively identifying situations. We also need the right attitude. We need affective development, which supports our ability to not only notice an ethical dilemma, but also have the strength, motivation and courage to speak up. And then we need the psychomotor rehearsal, you know, um, the more somebody rehearses speaking up, it embeds into our long term memory, that ability or those words, those key phrases, like, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where something just unfolded. And then later, when you're reflecting on the situation, you go, man, I wish I would have said this or said it differently yeah or, or <laughs> that's usually my problem like yeah. I'll say it and I'll be like I could have rephrased that yeah yeah and so the more opportunities people have to cognitively affectively and using psychomotor skills to rehearse that thing then they'll have those words in their toolbox that they can pull out of their pre-conscious thinking mm-hmm. make it conscious and mm-hmm. employ it in the moment you know I didn't I had to learn this on the job like all the rest of us did because mm-hmm. we weren't talking about this in nursing school. Yeah, yeah. And so I had to learn on the on the job that my go-to phrase was, can we talk about this? Or tell me more about that. I'm not understanding. Mm-hmm. And that go-to phrase just told the person that I was interested in talking with them about this situation so that we could really refocus our attention on this person mm-hmm. and try to come up with the best reasoned, ethically informed, evidence-based outcome that we could. Mm -hmm. So 
resiliency and coping are key. And yeah, a lot of this happens in simulation and during the debriefing. Mm -hmm. The way that we do simulation here is that the student is always the nurse. When the student goes into simulation, they're always playing the role of the nurse. They're not playing the role of anybody else on the interdisciplinary team. Who do you get to do those? We have student workers, volunteers, or actors who are doing those kinds of things. Yeah. And then, so every student is in with the simulator being the nurse, rehearsing their role as nurse. And then when they're done with their time with the simulator, then they go back into their... um, closed circuit viewing room with the faculty facilitator and the other students. Mm -hmm. And as a team, they're debriefing. What went on in there? How could that have gone better? What went well? You know, what, what else can we do to improve the situation so you guys have the confidence you need and the skills you need to be effective? I got to tell you when the first month or the first month, the first semester that we ran the simulation and embedded ethical dilemmas. It was so fresh because the students had never encountered that before. Students went, we need to be doing more of these because I didn't act the way I wanted to. Now that I've had time to reflect on it, I'm like, this is what I wish I could have done. So what we did with those students is we brought them back and gave them another opportunity. And we've captured that on video as well. And we have these, uh, we have permission to show those recordings too. And to just see the confidence when the students are responding to different ethical situations while they're titrating insulin IV, mm-hmm. while they're dealing with DKA symptoms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it is just, uh, you can tell by the look on my face, the listeners can't <laughs> see my face. She's but, really yeah. stoked. She's like, like she's having like, a moment. Oh my gosh, <laughs> we totally got there. And it's just so rewarding. So the other thing that we want to do is use an evidence-based moral distress thermometer. So we just finished a three-site study, Indiana University, Seattle Pacific University, and us. And I was the primary investigator on this three-site study. About 300 nursing students are in this study. And what we did with them is three things. We measured their current level of moral distress. We asked them what clinical experiences are causing that moral distress. Again, this goes back to a question you asked me earlier. Is academia causing moral distress or is it the clinical situation? When you're doing research, in order to really answer the question thoroughly, you have to hone it down and focus mm-hmm. on one thing. Mm-hmm. So we focus on what clinical scenarios are sure. causing your moral distress. Sure. We could ask what academic things are, but we didn't. It was just a curiosity yeah. on my part. Yeah. And then the third question we asked them, because the number one th- recommendation is to speak up, we asked them, what are the reasons you don't speak up? in these morally distressing situations. And they gave you responses. Okay. BSN students currently are accumulating moral distress even before they graduate, which if you look at the crescendo effect and moral residue literature says that they're already primed to accumulate more moral distress. And that accounts for this work one year, work two year turnover thing Mm -hmm. that you see with some Mm -hmm. new grads. The um, clinical situations contributing to moral distress fell into three areas infection control breaches, disrespect for inherent human dignity. And that manifested itself as incivility toward students as well as incivility toward patients. It was alarming at all three sites. The students reported observing nurses mock, belittle, and make fun of patients for the health state that they're in. And they didn't know how to speak up when that happened. Mm-hmm. So we're embedding that into our ethical dilemma simulations as well. If it's that prevalent, then we've got to do something to help them out. And then the third situation uh, was perceived constraints, external constraints, not enough time, not Mm -hmm. enough resources to 
do the best nursing care that we can for Mm -hmm. these patients. And then internal constraints, these prefactual mulling over, if I speak up, I'm going to get screamed at. If I speak up, I'm going to fail. If I speak up, that nurse is going to hate me and treat me rude. Those were the three top clinical things contributing to their moral distress. Then we asked them, what are the top seven reasons that you don't speak up? Um, What was the number one? The number one was I have a subordinate role. Yeah. I'm subordinate. Who am I to speak up? I don't, I don't count. I don't matter. And yet, the, the total opposite is true. They are coming in with freshly educated eyes. Maybe they don't know the contextual nature of this situation and why things are happening that way. Mm-hmm. But maybe they could save a patient from a medication error if they said, hey, the Pixis gave an alarm and I saw you overrode that. Could you tell me more about that? I think a lot of it is language, totally, because, you know, it, it, it's no one likes to be questioned. And least of all, do experienced nurses like to be questioned by the person who's not even licensed yet? And, you know, I think I think you're right. I think a lot of the key of it is in in the language of it and how you approach that. And, mm-hmm. and bravo for um, bringing those those techniques to the, the students now so yeah. they can carry it in, in their practice. Well, we know alarm fatigue happens. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, of course, you know, when we're, you know, Mm -hmm. um, canceling out alarms, Mm -hmm. alerts that show up on the the, machine. But but from like the novice perspective, they don't know why. And so it's it's bridging that gap. So I I think that that's that's important. Switching a little bit because we're um, uh, preparing all these students for real world practice. Do you think that it is more the responsibility of, say, the employee to deal with their own moral distress? Or do you think it is more the responsibility of, say, the employer or a mixture of both? Yes and yes. Yeah, my answer would be yes and yes. If you look at the literature on moral distress, it says constrained from acting because of internal and external reasons. So the internal reasons are your own ability to understand that an ethical issue has bubbled up. How do I effectively address this when I see it? So identifying the issue, speaking up, and then knowing what ethical framework to utilize in this situation. The external things that we often feel out of control over are time constraints, resources, access to resources that we need to really help this person or this population achieve a healthier state of well-being. The hierarchies and cultural norms that persist. In the 1960s, Friere from Brazil wrote about oppression, and he even wrote about oppression of nurses in healthcare environments. Some of it still persists, whether it's prefactual and only exists in our minds, or whether healthcare culture, the workplace setting really does make that persist. There's got to be something beyond crucial conversations. There's got to be something beyond the Joint Commission saying, we have to stop horizontal violence. Um, There's got to be a culture change that says everybody together counts and even the smallest voice that's new and fresh may save a life, may prevent a sentinel event. Every voice should count. The patient's voice should count. Mm -hmm. Totally. I think that everything that you have said has pointed to that we have thoroughly identified that this, that 
moral distress is a problem and it is here and it's not going anywhere because it's always been here. So it's good that we've identified it. And now it seems like it's a collective effort to figure out how to deal with it on a personal level, how Mm -hmm. to deal with it on a employer level, how to uh, deal with it from a nurse patient in, you know, like micro like relationship, your 12 hour shift sort of view. And then also how do we teach our, our new generation how to how to deal with this what do you think personally not from like an academic perspective from like Mm -hmm. from your years of experience as a nurse and as teaching students what do you think personally is the best way for healthcare workers and these future healthcare workers in any stage of their career to combat moral distress create a culture of respect I did not speak up in my first year I was afraid I think I was worried that my reputation would be on the line. I was worried that people would shun me because I was asking too many questions or whatever. And I think that personally, if we all just knew that everybody's function, goal, aspiration was to collectively make sure that this human being emerges from our care in a healthier state, if that was the focus of what we do, and if we had mutual respect, and if that underlied or permeated, yeah, if that permeated every act, then that would help us emerge from this issue that's been talked about for 20 years and seems to not be going anywhere. Can you think of a story about a patient, a family, a doctor, a coworker, or student in your own personal experience that has left a lasting impression on you? Yes. I'm going to go with a student. This young man had been through our had been through our classes, so we're really in pathos, so focused on the cellular tissue and organ level that too often I think that class will make students view the patient as cell tissue and organ and forget that they have a life and they have dignity and worth and value outside of, you know, all of that. As a, as a foundation for the story I'm going to tell, um, throughout all my classes, I infuse little ethical dilemmas along the way and get people thinking about how they might respond. So this young man had also been in our simulation. And then a month later, he showed up in my office sitting in my chair and he said, I did it. And I said, I'm sure it was great, whatever you did, because of the look on your face. But what is the it that you're talking about? And he said, I was taking care of a patient with a diabetic foot ulcer. And the lab technician came in to get the wound culture for us because we were waiting to start antibiotics. But we needed that wound culture. And I got a hold of them and they were like on their way. So they came in to do it. They didn't use sterile technique collecting the wound culture the way that they collected the sample would have impaired the results. And this patient was already had diabetic ketoacidosis and was already going through a whole lot of awful stuff. And we needed an accurate result. So we knew, like he knew that they were going to start them on a broad spectrum, but he wanted the best possible outcome for this person. This person was in their seventies, wanted to go back home wanted to age well in place, didn't want to have to have an amputation. Mm -hmm. So he spoke up and he said to the lab technician, can we talk about that? How you collected that? Well, this is the way I've always done it. What's wrong? Actually, the way that you collected that, 
the lab technician said, well, I'm in a hurry and I've got to get this down to the lab if you want it back in time. And he said, we're going to have to postpone the hanging of the antibiotics. Is there any way you can go get a new culture set and just redo that? And uh, they rolled their eyes at him and they said, nobody's ever said anything to me about this before. And he goes, well, I'm saying something now because it's important for this patient. He knew that he was only going to be with that patient for that shift, Mm -hmm. but he was going to leave that patient better off than how he found them. So that was a, that's the goal every day, right? That was a praise moment. There you go. I was like, you did the right thing and it felt painful, but how do you feel now? And he goes, I feel empowered. And I said, good, because that's another consequence of moral distress is powerlessness. Mm -hmm. The more moral residue you accumulate, you begin to feel more and more powerless. Mm -hmm. And then you just slip down that slope of status quo. Aside from the Oregon Center for Nursing, is there any other plugs that you'd like to, uh, to share with us today? Yes. The American Nurses Association has created a booklet called Moral Distress in You, Supporting Ethical Practice and Moral Resilience in Nursing. And um, you can purchase that from the American Nurses Association website. I would actually encourage healthcare agencies to purchase this for their nurses and hold workshops. I think that would be a great thing to do. Professional organizations like the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, Mm -hmm. they have literature out there on the four A's to rise above moral distress. So there's that. That's free. It's on their website. If you're a nurse working for a healthcare agency that has a library, just contact your librarian and ask her to do a lit review on moral distress in your practice environment. Because there have been studies done in NICU, PICU, oncology, all kinds of places. Yeah, hospital librarians are an often forgotten resource. And go pilots. Yay! Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Crouchide, for sitting down. You're welcome. You've been listening to episode three of Head to Toe. I know today's episode was super academic. Thanks for sticking with me until the end. I don't know about you, but I feel like my IQ just went up 150 points. So thank you, Dr. Crouchide and the University of Portland for hosting me today. For those of you looking for even more on the topic of moral distress, there are some links attached to the podcast, including the American Nurses Association Code of Ethics, the Oregon Center for Nursing, the University of Portland School of Nursing, and Dr. Crouchide's email, which is k-r-a-u-t-s-c-h at up.edu if you want to learn more about her research and um, U of P's unique way of utilizing simulation in nursing student education. I'm always on the lookout for more podcast guests. If you're a healthcare worker with 30 or more years of experience, I'd love to sit down and hear your stories. Please look me up on Facebook, Marie McMillan, or check out my website, mariemcmillan.com, or email me at macmillanpages at gmail.com. I know you're out there. Shoot me an email. Okay. Until next time, take care, everyone.